In the next set of cases, Dr. Bruce Chesson visited the practice of Dr. Maggie Deutsch, who began by presenting an elderly woman with indolent lymphoma. She's a 90-year-old woman who I saw in September of 2007 with a node in her neck, and that was biopsied and showed a low-grade lymphoma, follicular grade 3A. And on her initial workup staging, she had a retroperitoneal mass in addition to the neck node. So she was CD20 positive, and she had a lambda monoclonal CD10 positive B cell malignancy felt to be follicular lymphoma, although they did say there were areas that bordered on diffuse large B cell lymphoma. So we initially treated her with eight weekly doses of rituxin. She had a slight response to that and then went on to get CVP chemotherapy, which she tolerated quite well. And she came back after her CT scan. She got CVP or RCVP? RCVP. And what was her pre-existing health and lifestyle? She is a very spry 90-year-old. She can't hear very well, but she's otherwise very active. She lives with her niece, who's also a patient of mine, who's got a hypercoagulable syndrome. And they go off and do things pretty regularly together. She still drives. I think she's in really good health. She has had a prior stroke or TIA. She's on Plavix and aspirin. She has some arthritis, is a little bit immobilized, but ambulates with a cane. And what did her PET CT show? So her initial CT showed the FDG avid adenopathy in the neck where her biopsy was performed in the prejugular lymph nodes. There was a small positive node in the mediastinum, and then there was a bulky mass encasing the celiac mesenteric axis that was markedly FDG positive, measuring 5.5 by 5.8 centimeters. So, Bruce, what were your thoughts about this initial presentation and also this issue of question mark large cell lymphoma in the biopsy? Well, you know, the classification of follicular lymphomas is one, two, and three, depending on the number of large cells per high-powered field. And three is further subdivided into A and B, depending on whether you have more than 15 large cells or whether there are sheets of large cells, the latter behaving more like a diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. You do get some issues, particularly depending on the size of the biopsy, as to whether it's all follicular or whether there are diffuse areas. And if there are diffuse areas, whether they are primarily small cells, in which case you treat it more like a follicular lymphoma, or if there are more large cells, in which case you treat it more like an aggressive lymphoma. In a 90-plus-year-old woman, you would try to avoid really aggressive therapy. So since you treat all the folliculars alike, the therapy that was used is perfectly reasonable. What about, I've heard people talk about people being diagnosed and at the time of diagnosis sort of being in transformation. What's that look like pathologically and clinically compared to the way this patient presented? Well, transformation is different things to different patients. There are patients when, if you biopsy serial nodes, all of a sudden you'll see a bunch of large cells in a follicular background, and you may say, gee whiz, it looks like they're transforming, the patient feels fine, has no symptoms, and those patients tend to do extremely well. And then you've got the other transformed patients, which when they present have fevers and sweats and weight loss and rapidly enlarging lymph nodes, and those patients don't tend to do so well. The risk of transformation of follicular lymphoma is about 3% a year. So what you see sometimes at presentation is you'll see a follicular pattern and either in one part of the node and a more diffuse pattern of large cells in another, or you may see the two of them in the same node suggesting that where there is follicular, there is now large cells suggesting transformation. There's no real specific marker saying, I've transformed. 
it's not always easy and a good pathologist is often required, but it's having a lot of large cells where there are also follicular lymphoma sort of follicles that leads you to that suspicion. Does the PET scan help at all? The PET scan can help. PET scan is not perfect, that's for sure. But if a patient with a supposed insulin lymphoma has a question of transformation, then the PET scan is a good tool because it may identify the hottest node in the body, which is the one that you would like to excise to try and make the diagnosis of transformation because insulin lymphomas, for the most part, have SUVs under 10 or 12 and aggressive ones have higher SUVs, but it's not uniform. We've seen a number of large cells, which are five, six, seven, and we've seen several folliculars, which tend to be some of the more aggressive folliculars, the ones that don't respond as well, of 15, 18, 19. So it's not a perfect test, but it's good for directing you to where to tell the surgeon to go. So Maggie, this lady got two courses of RCVP, then what? We repeated her PET. We didn't want to give her too much treatment because of her age. And actually, after the first dose of Nulasta, her white count went up to 80,000, and she was about ready to quit because she had so much bone pain. But she, after the four cycles, had another PET scan. The mass had decreased and was no longer FDG avid, so we stopped. What about the issue of growth factor support, Bruce? This lady got RCVP, but yet she was 90. How do you make that decision? Well, the ASCO guidelines for diseases such as this suggest that for patients who are older, I hate to say over 60 is older now, but those who are over 60 get prophylactic growth factors for regimens that are moderately likely to cause neutropenia, neutropenic fevers. And those that are younger, in general, we wait until they've had an episode of neutropenic fever before we administer either Nuprogen or Nulasta. So for example, would you utilize preemptive Nulasta in this patient? Yeah, she's 90 plus, she's about 90 years old. You don't know how well she's going to tolerate therapy, and I'd certainly give her the benefit of the doubt. If it becomes a real problem, then you can either switch to Nupagen, which doesn't tend to give quite as much bone pain, or you can try it for a cycle without and just see how she does, because you're not going to be giving her more than about four cycles anyhow. And just out of curiosity, would you also use growth factors with bendamustine or? I don't. I don't find that it's quite as myelosuppressive. I never do it in the prophylactic setting. On occasion, I've had to do it therapeutically. Okay, so what happened next, Maggie? So she was doing well and had a follow-up PET scan in early 2009, and she was found to have uptake in the right side of her colon. She came back to see me in the office and told me she was feeling a little tired and had iron deficiency anemia and ultimately got a colonoscopy and was found to have colon cancer. So she went to surgery this summer and had her colon cancer resected. She was lymph node negative. And we didn't really seriously entertain any thought of giving her adjuvant chemotherapy. She struggled a little bit post-op with some confusion, but now she's back to her baseline and doing well and has had yet another CT scan that shows um, residual mass in the abdomen where her original bulk disease was, but no FDG uptake. So she's continuing to do pretty well and is fairly active right now. What was your impression meeting with her today, Bruce? Oh, she was a delightful woman who looks and acts much younger than her stated age. I would have thought she could have tolerated almost anything. Her only problem was she fell yesterday and marginally injured her hand, but she was terrific. And her family member was extremely devoted to her. 
it was a delightful interaction. She was charming and she's done very well. And she has a very realistic approach to her disease, was very, very grateful for the care that she'd received and seemed to be a very nice, compliant woman who probably has many good years ahead of her. Let's talk a little bit about the decision to treat her with RCVP at that point in time. Is that the therapy you would have utilized, Bruce? Well, I've stopped using CVP a number of years ago since I was gathering experience with bendamustine. Bendamustine has been compared with CHOP, our bendamustine and our CHOP, in a large study presented at the last ASH meetings by Matthias Rummel. And this was in patients with follicular, mantle cell, marginal zone, and some lymphoplasmacytics. And it was a very courageous study to undertake because our CHOP is the standard and it's the big gun. And how would you think that this little 40-year-old drug from East Germany could stand up to it? But in fact, not only was the response rate in these previously untreated patients higher than 90% in both arms, but the complete remission rate was higher with bendamustine. And importantly, the progression-free survival was significantly longer and the toxicity was considerably less, particularly mucositis, infections, neutropenia, and things like that. So bendamustine is a very good drug. It's a very good alternative to a regimen such as CHOP. And if it's better than CHOP, then it's certainly likely to be better than CVP. And particularly in older patients, because it's very well tolerated for the most part. There are obviously occasional patients who don't do well with any regimen. And it also is not metabolized much through the kidneys. So when you get to be older and you have some age-related renal dysfunction, you can give full-dose bendamustine. You can't give full-dose fludarabine. You can't give full-doses of other drugs. But you can always give full-doses of bendamustine. So it's a very, very good alternative, particularly for older patients, those with some comorbidities, renal dysfunction, et cetera. So I think it would have been another alternative to the RCVP that the patient received. Maggie, what experience, if any, do you have with bendamustine? I have used some bendamustine. I I agree that it's relatively easy to use. It's tolerable. Patients don't get particularly sick from it. I think she would have tolerated it better than the CVP. We wouldn't have had to worry about the growth factor issue, which was probably the thing that bothered her the most initially about her treatments. So I think it's a really attractive alternative, and it's less toxic. So I think that it makes sense to consider that first line just in terms of the overall toxicity profile. What would you be thinking, Maggie, if this woman did develop disease progression at this point? Oh, then I'd definitely treat her with bendamustine rituxan. It just seems like that would be the next best step for her. I wouldn't go back to rituxan alone because she really never responded to that to begin with. And she has 3A disease, so perhaps maybe a little more aggressive but I think that bendamustine would be my choice. Bruce, what's going on in terms of new agents and new research strategies in follicular? Oh, well, there's a whole host of new drugs out there. It's a very encouraging time for patients with follicular lymphoma. For example, there is a long menu of new monoclonal antibodies. There are almost 10 anti-CD20s between here and overseas that are being studied, the most widely studied being ofatumumab, which appears to be more effective in CLL than it does in follicular lymphoma. There's GA101 and a number of others, which we'll see what happens with them. You know, for another anti-CD20 to supplant vitamin R, as we affectionately refer to it, it's either going to have to be better or it's going to have to work where rituximab fails to work. And the only data we have with ofatumumab, for example, 
is a study of about 117 patients presented at the ASH meetings in rituximab refractory follicular lymphoma, and the response rate was only about 10%. It was a bit higher if the patients were refractory to rituximab alone, that about 20, 22%, but it was even lower, about 9%, if they were refractory to chemo rituximab. So it loses in that particular objective, but we'll see what happens. So we have other monoclonal antibodies that are being looked at, and then there are other drugs. For example, there are drugs that target some important pathways. There is the PI3 kinase pathway, and there is a drug CAL-101 from Calistoga, which is a PI3 kinase inhibitor of a specific part of that pathway. And this drug is particularly effective in CLL-SLL, less so in follicular, but it's a novel oral agent. Then we have some small molecules. One that is being most widely tested now is ABT263 from Abbott, which inhibits the anti-apoptotic pathway. And this drug by itself has modest activity, but when you combine it with other drugs such as rituximab or bendamustine, it appears that at least in vitro, They have additive, if not synergistic, activity. And there's now an international study of bendamustine with or without ABT263, just like there's a study of bendamustine with or without GA101, the monoclonal anti-CD20. Another drug, which we haven't talked about much, is lenalidomide. This is the second-generation IMID, which has been approved for myelodysplastic syndrome, particularly 5Q-, multiple myeloma, and has been shown in a series of phase two studies to be active in follicular lymphoma with a response rate of around, oh, 25% and large cell lymphoma with a comparable response rate. But of particular note in mantle cell lymphoma, in two studies now, the response rate is about 50%. And I, in fact, have a patient with mantle cell who failed hyper-CBAD, failed transplant, and is now in complete remission for three years on lenalidomide. By itself, a lot of these drugs are interesting, but not overwhelming, but it's how we put them together that's important. For example, a former fellow of mine, Nathan Fowler from MD Anderson, presented at ASH a phase two study of lenalidomide plus rituximab as the initial treatment of follicular lymphoma and got an astounding, I think it was 87% response rate most of which were complete remissions. And in the CLGB, we're about to embark on a confirmatory trial of that regimen. So we have antibodies, we have drugs that target a variety of pathways, and we have small molecules, all of which by themselves are of interest, but how we put them together to develop more effective regimens is the goal of treatment. And what I didn't talk about here is chemotherapy drugs, because other than bendamustine, A, there aren't very many good new chemotherapy drugs, and B, we don't want them. We want targeted therapies that avoid the nonspecific toxicities that we encounter with chemotherapy. And although bendamustine has become sort of the backbone on which new regimens are built, eventually we hope to get away from chemotherapy. For example, in the CALGB, we have a series of biological doublets for the initial treatment of follicular lymphoma for patients who perhaps don't want, don't need, can't tolerate chemotherapy. The first one was rituximab and galixamab, an anti-CD80 monoclonal antibody. And in low flippy patients, we achieved a response rate with this doublet of 92% with 75% complete remissions 
In intermediate flippy, it was around 75% with 50 or 60% complete remissions, and they were very durable. The next one was rituximab, epirtuzumab, and as I mentioned, the next one is going to be rituximab and lenalidomide. So we're trying to get away from chemotherapy as best as we can. What about proteasome inhibition and follicular lymphoma? Well, there are some interesting data with the proteasome inhibitors, particularly bortezomib, in follicular lymphoma. By itself, the response rate is a little difficult to assess. It's in the range of maybe 30%. But there are some interesting data, particularly from Sven DeVos, suggesting that the combination with rituximab is of interest. And they looked at a regimen of rituximab with the standard day 1, 4, 8, and 11 of bortezomib or with weekly bortezomib, and the weekly was equally efficacious and much less toxic. And then we did a trial called the vertical trial, in which we took rituximab, bendamustine, and bortezomib and combined them and got response rate and relapsed refractory follicular lymphoma well in excess of 80%. And we're now about to look at that in the frontline therapy of patients with lymphoma to see if we can even do better. 